It's the Victorian Variety Show. the heaviest black of serge, bombazine, lusterless alpaca, delaine, merino, or similar heavy clinging material with collar and cuffs of crepe. A widow wears a bonnet cap of white tarleton, known as the widow's cap. Morning garments are made in the severest simplicity they should have little to no trimming. No flounces, ruffles, or bows are allowable. If the dress is not made en suite, then a long or square shawl of barege or cashmere with crepe border is worn. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast where I talk about aspects of life during the Victorian era that you may not be familiar with, or if you do know about them, you might think they're strange or morbid, because at first glance, they seem worlds apart from things that we do today. Even though, if you examine them from a different perspective, you'll see that in some ways, the Victorians weren't all that different from those of us in the present day. And in other cases, we might actually be able to learn a thing or two from them. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is from Chapter 9 of The Ladies and Gentlemen's Etiquette, a complete manual of the manners and dress of American society by E.B. Duffy, which was published in 1877 and includes rules of etiquette for just about any situation that a well-to-do Victorian may have found themselves in whether it was on the street, at the dinner table, playing cards, or attending a wedding or funeral. Although the chapter on funeral etiquette is separate from the one on mourning, because as I'll discuss in more detail very soon, one did not confine their mourning to the days leading up to the funeral and the service in Victorian times. Oh no, there were many traditions both formal and informal, that were widely followed in the weeks, months, and even years after someone died. And I've decided to focus on some of these traditions in my last episode, which was on morning dolls and death kits, and this one, in which I'm going to focus on the stages of mourning for Victorian women and how they typically dress during the mourning period. There are other morning traditions that I'd like to focus on in future episodes. The main reason I'm not going to focus on more in this one is because there's quite a bit of information, and I think it would be pretty easy to info dump, which actually, I hope I don't end up doing it. I have no problem personally with info dumping, but I know others do. But also, I think limiting our focus is best for this topic because it'll give us some space to consider the impact of the morning etiquette many Victorian women followed. Even though some parts of it weren't so cool and were even dangerous. But before I go into detail about the stages of mourning or styles of dress, I want to emphasize two points that I think are important. First, 
I mentioned well-to-do Victorians in my intro, and I want to stress that morning etiquette was, in a sense, a luxury that required both a financial and a time commitment. Most upper-class Victorian women did not work outside the home, and many of them had a maid and butler and or a nanny, so that when a loved one died, many of these women were able to have someone else look after the home and the children which gave the grieving woman more mourning time. On the other hand, most working class women, being that they were working class, weren't able to stop working for an extensive period of time after the loss of a loved one. I wonder how many of them even were able to take a day off to bury their dead. They didn't have assistance, and they certainly didn't have the kind of money to buy the types of mourning clothes that I'm going to discuss. At the most, most of them probably could just dye their clothes black or something like that. I've mentioned before that I think a lot of media and academic depictions of the Victorian era tend to omit the working class altogether, which I think is a huge mistake. So I'm glad to see that some of the sources that I looked at in putting this episode together emphasize that many of these morning rituals didn't apply to all women during this period. And the second point that I want to make is that while there were morning rituals for men, such as, for example, the wearing of black armbands or a black crepe hatband whose width was based on how close a relation the deceased was, they were much less extensive than for women because many wealthy men worked outside the home and couldn't be expected to keep a lower social profile after the passing of a loved one. In some ways, you could say not much has changed today. So what inspired the elaborate mourning guidelines Victorian women were expected to follow? In an article called In Mourning for Prince Albert, Nicholas Smith explains that in the mid-19th century, although elaborate displays of grief were not uncommon, the mourning period generally did not last long, and remarriage soon after the death of a spouse was generally not as frowned upon as it became during the Victorian era. But that changed after the death of Queen Victoria's beloved husband, Prince Albert, at the age of 42 in 1861. And Queen Victoria continued to mourn him until her own death in 1901. Even though Victoria insisted that Albert be treated as though he were still living at home, which resulted in his bedside table remaining mostly untouched and his attendants continuing to bring him clean clothing and towels and hot water for decades after his death, she dressed in black for the rest of her life and rarely appeared in public. Smith notes that, quote, mourning became a sort of religion for her and remained one. Queen Victoria's position and her personal wealth allowed her to indulge to the full her enthusiasm for mourning and monuments, end quote. Due to her position and wealth, Victoria's influence remained strong, even though the public rarely caught a glimpse of her in person. So it wasn't long before women on both sides of the pond adopted more elaborate mourning traditions, which really were intended for the public as much as they were for the grieving woman herself, in the sense that the way a woman mourned a lost loved one was perceived as showing how devoted she was to the deceased and the amount of despair that she felt after their passing. 
So it was imperative that a bereaved woman not come out of mourning too soon, as doing so might suggest a lack of devotion. However, the amount of time a woman was expected to mourn varied, depending on her relation to the deceased. According to Duffy, the recommended mourning period was as follows. Three months for an uncle, aunt, niece, or nephew. Six months for a sibling, a grandparent, or, quote, a friend who leaves you an inheritance, end quote. As for a friend who didn't leave you with an inheritance, your guess is as good as mine. One year for a parent or child, and two years minimum for a husband, although some widows continue to mourn to some degree for the remainder of their lives. This was the longest period because, as Sam Tetralt says in Victorian Mourning, Dress and Customs Explained, quote, widows were expected to suffer the most from the loss of a spouse, end quote, for a number of reasons. For some women, the loss of a beloved companion itself was devastating. But, going back to what I said a few minutes ago, most upper-class women during this time didn't work outside the home and or, as in the case of Queen Victoria, tended to depend on their husbands to do most of the decision-making. In addition, each mourning period was divided into separate stages. The first half was for deep mourning, and the second half was for second or half mourning. And some of the sources I consulted divided second and half mourning into separate stages. For example, in Victorian Mourning, an art form in the 19th century, Jerry Walton explains that second mourning lasted nine months and half mourning lasted from three to six months. The deep mourning period was, was the strictest, both in terms of how women were expected to act and what they were supposed to wear. In Angels in Black, Victorian Women in Mourning, Catherine McDaniel explains that women in deep mourning were expected to refrain from attending public events outside of church services and could only accept formal invitations from close relatives. To convey that they were in deep mourning, women dressed entirely in black, in dresses made of non-reflective silk or crepe, and covered their faces with long, heavy crepe veils on their rare ventures outside the home. You may have heard these mourning garments referred to as quote-unquote widow's weeds, with weed derived from an old English word for clothing or garment. They normally wore mourning clothes at home, too, but with a cap rather than a veil. For the most part, ornamentation was out of the question during the deep mourning period. At most, McDaniel notes that quote-unquote modest amounts of pearls or jet jewelry could be worn. And jet is a gemstone that's made from deep black lignite, which is a type of coal. According to an article on the Compass Rose Design website called History of Victorian Mourning Jewelry, it was expensive because it was easily breakable, so skilled craftsmanship was needed during the carving process. However, Mourning jewelry wasn't the only expensive part of the deep mourning period. In Victorian, women took their mourning rituals very seriously, 
Kiri Gray notes that Victorian mourning etiquette, quote, strongly suggested, end quote, that a woman purchase a new mourning dress each time a loved one died because so-called recycling was considered to be in poor taste. For example, a woman would ideally want to purchase new dresses after her husband's death rather than maybe wear the same ones she purchased after her father's death a few years earlier, or else I don't know, her neighbors might recognize the dress and assume that she must not have cared about her husband enough to buy a new one or something like that. So there was a lot of demand for new mourning dresses and accessories, and they were generally needed quickly. Some popular department stores during this time had mourning departments, but there were also emporiums and warehouses devoted solely to mourning attire and accessories. A few weeks ago, I tweeted an old ad I found online for a sale at Peter Robinson's Morning Warehouse in London. And according to the ad, quote, those ladies who kindly pay an early visit can secure remarkably cheap goods, end quote. Which makes me wonder if many women stocked up on morning garb in advance, rather than waiting to do their shopping on a loved one's death. I remember mentioning in my first episode on death and mourning rituals last year that it was common for Victorians of all ages to make plans for their own deaths well in advance. So I can imagine women who, perhaps in appreciation of a good bargain, took advantage of sales at mourning warehouses to build up a supply of new mourning clothing that they could have on hand in case I don't know, they were too incapacitated by grief when a loved one died to go shopping. That said, some retailers were able to send staff out on house calls to women who lived at a distance from such establishments, such as a Jay's Morning Warehouse, another London establishment that I found an ad to, and actually I think I'm going to be tweeting this uh, with this episode, so... If you follow me on Twitter, please go check that ad out. But according to this ad, Jay's was able to send staff to, quote, any part of the kingdom free of expense to purchasers when the emergencies of mourning require the immediate execution of orders, end quote. Before I discuss the next mourning phase, I'm going to talk some more about black crepe because it played such an important role in Victorian deep mourning etiquette, so much so that its use wasn't limited strictly to a mourner's wardrobe. For example, many families attached crepe to their front doors or hung it from the doorknobs as an announcement, if you will, to the neighbors that a death had occurred. However, in the Victorian Book of the Dead, Chris Woodyard calls crepe, which was usually made of silk, but might also contain wool, and was known for having a crinkled appearance, quote, the essential and unmistakable badge of the widow, end quote. Although Woodyard acknowledges that many widows reportedly were grateful for the protection their black crepe veils provided against the public's critical eye, crepe was problematic for a number of reasons. It was dyed black and treated with a number of chemicals, which made it stiff and gave it an unpleasant smell. Woodyard notes that the Reverend Henry Ward Beecher once said that, quote, the smell of crepe is to me like the smell of a charnel house, 
end quote. Combine that with the weight of the long veils, and it seems to me like morning crepe could be very uncomfortable to wear. In addition, all it took was a little rain or a few tears or, heck, even a little sweat in warmer weather for the dye to come off on the woman's skin. And these stains were difficult to remove from what I've read. But the worst part, I think, was that women were breathing a number of dangerous chemicals whenever they wore their veils. In wearing a 19th century morning veil could result in twist, death, Jocelyn Sears explains that dyes were often made with chromium and benzene, which can be toxic when inhaled, as well as arsenic, which usually remained in the finished product. I did an episode earlier this year on the role arsenic played in a wide variety of common household items, including wallpaper and beauty products. So on the one hand, it didn't surprise me to learn that arsenic could also be found in mourning veils during the Victorian era. However, as I mentioned in that episode, in the late 19th century, people were finally waking up to the dangers of arsenic and demanding arsenic-free alternatives to their household goods. And thankfully, the dangers of crepe veils containing arsenic were also being noticed around this time by doctors, fashion magazines, and even ghosts. According to Sears, a spirit by the name of Samuel Bowles communicated to the American medium Carrie E.S. Twing that, quote, the coloring matter that enters into black crepe is a blood poison and would be deadly were it to come more in contact with the body, end quote. As a result, Sears explains that by the 1890s, Crepe veils were pretty much falling out of fashion. Some women still wore them, but let them hang down their back. And many others were foregoing crepe altogether and opting for light net veils. Crepe didn't disappear once the deep mourning period ended, but its presence diminished as expectations for women in mourning began to shift. According to Duffy, quote, the second year, silk trimmed with crepe, black lace collar and cuffs, and a shorter veil may be worn. And in the last six months, gray, violet, and white are permitted, end quote. I think the reason some historians break the second year into two stages is because a limited number of colors other than black could be worn in the last six months. Although Duffy mentions violet as one of them, women in the final stage of mourning also wore shades of purple like mauve and lavender. In shades of Victorian fashion, lilacs, lavenders, plums, and purples, Mimi Matthews points out that purple was a very versatile color in Victorian era fashion conveying sadness and sorrow in the context of mourning, but also adding drama to afternoon and evening wear, and combining well with a variety of other colors. So, as you can see, etiquette regarding women's mourning clothes was less strict during the second year. In addition, women often wore gold, silver, and gemstones in addition to pearls and jet jewelry, and they could venture outside the home more often and receive more guests at home. 
As with deep mourning, you might say that the second and or half mourning stage was also intended for the public, communicating, essentially, that even though a woman was beginning to resume her normal activities and growing more accustomed to life without her deceased loved one, she continued to mourn their absence and respect their memory. I'm going to end my discussion of Victorian mourning etiquette for women for now, but I'm going to admit that I've wanted to cover this topic for some time. I saw a photo of some 19th century women in deep mourning garb in a history group on Facebook, which I no longer use, late last year, and remember seeing a number of comments on how depressing the photo was to look at, and how oppressed the women seemed, and how happy these commenters were that most people in mourning no longer dressed this, that way. But there were others who defended Victorian mourning etiquette. I didn't comment because I didn't feel I knew enough at the time to add anything of value to the, the discussion, but I made a mental bookmark to learn more and possibly do a podcast episode on it, and here we are. And now that I do know more, I'd say that I lean more on the side of defending Victorian morning etiquette, even though it didn't apply to all women, and before I started doing research for this episode, I had no idea how many chemicals were used in making crepe and the amount of arsenic in the veils, so I'm really glad those are no longer a thing. But overall, as I've indicated in past episodes, I respect that the Victorians believed in taking time to honor the memory of the deceased, as opposed to doing things like, oh, maybe not requiring the black be worn at funerals anymore, or holding quote-unquote celebrations of life instead of funerals, and basically moving on too soon. And don't get me wrong, I have seen examples of people making plans for their own funerals and telling their loved ones, I don't want any elaborate displays of grief or anything like that at my service. And also, in general, I'm all for people coping with the death of loved ones in the way that works best for them. Because, as I already mentioned, and I'm going to stress it again, services and mourning etiquette really are for the living. But I do think there's a big difference between coping with death and running from it, which a lot of people in Western culture still tend to do. I think of this every time I see a news story on moving on from COVID, even though we're going through yet another wave of it in the United States and in other parts of the world, and I'm of the opinion that you can't move on from something that hasn't gone away yet, especially considering millions of people around the world have died from it and many are struggling with long COVID now, but I digress. What I'm trying to say is that the Victorians seem to have understood the power of loss. So while two years of mourning might seem excessive to some of us today, for others, two years might not be long enough. And I think that's okay. And now, I want to know what you think. Email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at http tps colon slash slash anchor dot fm slash marissa hyphen d 96 slash message 
You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13, or you can leave me a tip on my Linktree page at https colon slash slash linktruth period ee slash the Victorian Variety Show, one word, or using the tip jar if you're listening on the Good Pods app. Also, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. I greatly appreciate all of your ratings, and I wanted to take this moment to thank Stephen for rating a bunch of my episodes on the Good Pods app. Stephen, I'm so glad you like the show, and I'm so grateful for your feedback. And I also want to give Stephen's podcast, Dark Stories from the Campfire, a shout-out. I think it's really cool, and I think a lot of listeners of my show might like it. So I'm going to include a link in the show notes so all of you can check it out. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode on a topic that I've not yet decided on, although I have a few ideas. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with a few lines I found in Chris Woodyard's The Victorian Book of the Dead, which has been a fantastic resource for me in putting this and the previous episode together, and is a great book overall if you're interested in Victorian mourning and funeral etiquette. I'll include a link to the book in the show notes, along with the other sources that I used. This excerpt from Woodyard's book looks to be from the December 15, 1897 Indiana State Journal, and I like it because it uses a pun on the word mourning. It's a good reminder that even though the Victorians really made a lifestyle out of morbid things, they had a clever sense of humor which to me is important, whether we're looking at the Victorian era or the present day. And just to clear up any doubts, the first line that I'm reading is Willie, the son, and the second is Papa. Pa, what kind of plants are widow's weeds? Oh, a sort of morning glory in most cases. 